The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long E has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long E products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. I think, you know, there are also some entrepreneurs that are coming in with a little bit more, I don't know if the right word is, like, swagger, but it's like a good... That's funny. I was thinking that word in my head. I was like, whatever she says, I'm going to say swagger. (laughs) I was like, like, can I say that on the interchange? And I was like, of course I can. So that was my pause. But yeah, with more swagger, knowing that in some instances, maybe this is a, you know, a startup's market, like they can have their choice. And the question is, how long is that going to last? And who's going to be around you know, if and when the tide goes out again on climate tech. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am not referring to Coolio, nor Weird Al Yankovic, nor the King James Bible. I'm talking about valleys of death in climate tech. This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Okay, so the timing here is obviously not exact, but let's just assume that the first boom in the world of what was then called clean tech went bust roughly after the Solyndra bankruptcy announcement. That was in September 2011 that that happened. And the market has really only started to pick back up again, now called climate tech, really over the past two years. I would say. So roughly speaking, between those two periods, there was about eight years when clean tech or climate tech was wandering in the wilderness, so to speak. And during that time, I think at least two things were happening. First, there was a ton of introspection amongst all the actors who'd been a part of that first boom and bust. Was venture capital the wrong model for clean tech was a question that was often asked and sometimes answered in the affirmative by by some people. Is energy fundamentally poorly suited to new technology? Is it just too ossified and too slow? So there's all this navel gazing. And second, there was a lot of focus on the so-called valley or valleys of death, the parts of the progression of a new technology or a new business where, you know, it is common for a startup to fall victim to an inability to proceed because of a lack of capital, generally speaking. I'm less interested in all that introspection about VC and and clean tech at this point. Personally, I think the jury has basically come back resoundingly to suggest that there is nothing fundamental about climate tech that makes it poorly suited for venture capital or for technology innovation. There were just some bad bets that got made a decade ago and some learnings that are to be taken from that. But there's no no reason to, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater here. 
But the second thing around valleys of death, that that's more interesting to me because it is a real challenge. There are certain stages in a company's life cycle that are particularly difficult to cross. And that thinking over the past decade has shifted the terrain. So the valleys of death that existed back in 2011, 2014, 2016, might now be more like pleasant meadows, uh, at least for some companies today. But still, it is one of the most important things you can plan for as an innovator. Where will your valleys of death be? And what resources can you draw upon in order to cross them successfully? To that end, I had a great chat with Amy Dufour, who is a principal at Prime Impact Fund. Prime is set up specifically to help startups cross one of the early valleys of death that often befalls companies, particularly in the sort of hard tech world. For full disclosure, I'm a member of Prime's Investor Advisory Council, so I'm a fan of their model and, and what they do. But nonetheless, I think it's insightful to think about this kind of stuff because it impacts both the landscape for early stage technologies in the world of climate change mitigation um, and how to think about investing within those companies. So with no further ado, my conversation with Amy. Amy, welcome. Thanks for having me, Shell. So you were on the Energy Gang a few months ago, I believe. So I just need you to know that it's very important to me that this episode is better than that previous episode. Wow, no pressure. That is a pretty high bar, but I am up to the challenge. I, I feel confident that we will be able to surpass the audio quality and performance of the previous episode. Um, so, okay, so we're going to chat about valleys of death as they apply in the context of climate tech, or I guess when we talk historically in the context of what we used to call clean tech. But we should probably start at the most basic level. Um, how do you think about defining valleys of death for startups, for technologies? Um, what is the sort of fundamental principle that defines them? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think first, it's kind of important to ground ourselves in what climate kind of tech companies are because it's different than investing in software companies, which has sort of their own valley of death. So I think with climate tech startups, um, especially those with a hardware or a deep tech focus, I mean, they're hard. <laughs> they're often more capital intensive. They require a longer investing horizon. Plus, they have real technical, commercial and regulatory challenges in markets where incumbents have a lot of inertia. So I think that framing is really important to understand the different dynamics of the environment that these startups are operating in. And so when I then kind of go through and think about what are the actual different valleys of death for climate tech startups, um, the Rocky Mountain Institute has a really great article that outlines some of the four key areas. So first is really around startup formation. So when a company is kind of spinning out tech, usually from a university lab or transitioning from research grants, they often find it challenging to raise capital. They're super early. They don't have a full-fledged team. And often they haven't achieved enough proof points. So they're perceived as pretty risky for mainstream VCs. So that's one. Um, a second one is around product development. So there are also lots of early-stage climate tech startups that struggle when they're trying to produce their first minimum vial product or figure out their initial product market fit. So they've got to navigate really complex manufacturing processes and supply chains. Um, I mentioned before that they've have incumbents that they don't want to change and they've got kind of funky and long regulatory processes. And so it can also be really hard for a team that hasn't been completely built out and doesn't have the industry experience. So all of these are a little bit earlier on the side. 
Um, I'd say the third piece is really around commercial market validation. So a lot of climate tech companies also find it hard to get capital to demonstrate that first commercial scale product or facility. They can get stuck in the rut of pilot after pilot with little commercial traction from key customers or partners, often because those stakeholders are risk averse and they have long development cycles. Um, so that can be another kind of key key death trap. Uh, and then the last one is really around widespread deployment. So climate tech companies <laughs> are capital intensive. So when they get to this point where they're really ready to have kind of a large scale market adoption, they need people with really deep pockets. And so where can companies find low cost financing within the broader value chain? I think that often comes from debt or infra investors, but they often want to see established stable cash flows. Um, and so a lot of money that's getting put into climate tech companies are really in wind and solar. And there are other technologies that have been kind of woefully underfunded. So we've got got a ways to go. Right. OK, so just to summarize, then, I also like that um, RMI categorization of the valleys of death you typically see in climate tech. I would add, too, that like I think you're right that the. There, there's a difference between the valleys of death that, that might befall a hard tech or a deep tech company versus those that bef are likely to befall a software company. But some of them are, are common. I mean, within the context of climate tech, right? Like the uh, death by pilot problem, that's pretty universal, right? That's not just it, applicable to a hard tech company, though it maybe is harder uh, to get past with a hard tech company. But okay, just to summarize then, so there's the... Um, spinning out the technology valley of death, then there's the product market fit valley of death, then there's the death by pilot valley of death, and then there's the like building a successful at scale enterprise valley of death. Uh, I love your categorizations so, much better. <laughs> this is just my shorthand. So um, so let's talk about Prime where you work because Prime, you know, was, as I understand it, basically set up specifically to try to bridge valleys of death. But Prime's also been around long enough to probably see what we are going to talk about, which is like how these valleys have changed, how they've shifted, how the funding landscape at various stages has shifted and so on. So let's let's start by just briefly going back to the beginning. When Prime was set up, what was the identified problem? Like where was the valley of death or where were the valleys of death that Prime said, oh, somebody's got to solve this or this whole market's not going to come together. Yeah. So Prime really focuses on the kind of first valley of death, that startup company formation. And I think we have to kind of go back to what did the broader investing environment look like in 2014 when Prime was founded? Um, so the, the tide was pretty much all the way out on clean tech and climate tech companies. I mean, when you think about clean tech 1.0, VC investment kind of went to a peak of four and a half billion in 2011, and then everything crashed. And I think uh, kind of a survey that I love to to reference is the National Venture Capital Association had this money tree survey and it was they were surveying initial investments in clean tech companies from institutional investors that started declining in late 2014. Again, when Prime was founded and by Q2 and Q3 of 2015, it was almost zero dollars for two quarters. So kind of the environment that Prime was born in was one where there was very little early stage climate tech companies being financed. Entrepreneurs were really scraping together checks because VC investors had been burned from clean tech 1.0. And so there was a lot of thought in terms of how we can find 
appropriate colors of capital that are much more flexible and structurally patient for climate tech companies and really help them traverse through that first uh, valley of death. Um, so I think that's probably the key gap that Prime was was solving. And while I talked about VC, which is, I think, a really important element of that, Prime is also interesting because it really sits within this kind of intersection of both venture capital and then also philanthropy, which I can talk a little bit more about the use of, of catalytic capital and kind of what that means. But even when you think about philanthropy at that time, climate as a category within basic kind of R&D amongst nonprofits was vastly underfunded. I mean, research funding is really important in terms of that pipeline for startup company formation. That leads to practical engineering, which then leads to for-profit innovation and ultimately VC funding. And so there was also an underfunding of basic science in the climate space by nonprofits and philanthropists at that time. So there were kind of two two gaps that were working in tandem. So uh, my understanding of, of Prime is almost by definition, you're looking to be counter-cyclical. You certainly were when you started right as exactly as you pointed out like prime primes founded right as the crash occurs um and then you know even today because you're still trying to be catalytic capital as you described you're basically looking for the sectors that are currently underfunded which means you're sort of running against the tide to some degree i wonder whether that's um you know in addition to being you know with the philanthropic angle you know good for the world there's also a fair amount of evidence historically that like many of the best companies are built in down, in the middle of downturns, you know, and generally it's a broader sectoral downturn, but you look at all these companies that were founded right after the dot-com crash that have gone on to be enormously huge, successful companies. Is that sort of the thesis that like when everybody else is running away, it's actually the smart thing to do to run toward either a, uh, broadly the climate tech sector or like even now today, specific subsectors within it that are unloved? Yes, Shale, you've hit the nail on the head. We, you know, like to think at Prime, I mean, firstly, we're focused on large scale climate impact, but our kind of use of catalytic capital and really using that to address these valleys of death means we're looking in places where others generally aren't. I mean, we tend to not invest in, you know, hot deals. Um, and that doesn't mean that other mainstream investors aren't interested in it. But if there is a 3x oversubscribed round and you have got conventional um, generalist investors around the table and deep climate investors also around the table, we have this special color of capital, which we want to use to de-risk early stage climate technologies and really fill a, a capital gap that can help those companies move through that first valley of death, it's probably just not the best use of our, our capital. We can look elsewhere. And there's a lot of nuance in how that manifests. I mean, it can often manifest that we often go earlier than others. Like we're not afraid of going into university labs. It could also mean that we're kind of the only climate focused investor around the table. But I think kind of bringing it back to 2014 when Prime was founded um, by Sarah Carney is the key or like fundamental question was, Will this company be sufficiently funded sort of but for Prime's intervention? And because there was so little VC investment activity, the answer was often no. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, 
and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. So let's briefly talk about what that looked like back then, but then I want to I want to talk a fair bit about what's changed and how this environment, especially today, which we know is dramatically different from those uh, as you said when the tide was fully out in in 2014, 2015. But but first let's let's um give an example perhaps of a company that Prime got involved with early back in those those first days. What was the valley of death that you perceived at that point, and then you know what has happened to that company since. Let me take it back to um, the first company that Prime backed, which was Quidnet Energy. So Quidnet is a Houston-based company. They're combining conventional pumped hydroelectric storage technology with existing drilling technology. So it's all about providing long-duration energy storage for utilities and renewable energy developers. They've now become really successful with incredible partners and follow investors, but they first had to wade through those early stage climate tech valleys of death when we met them. So when my colleagues, um, Sarah Carney and Matthew Norton met the Quidnet team in 2013, the team was primarily the technical founder, Howard Schmidt. He's a, um, a former Rice University faculty member. He's got an ONG background and Howard had this insight that batteries could be too expensive to store solar and wind and dispatch it when it's needed. So there could be another way that we could store energy in the form of pressurized water and underground geologic formations, really drawing on a toolkit that had been developed for over 40 years of research in the ONG industry. So, you know, the reason, first of all, that it was exciting to us because we focus on gigaton scale climate impact is that the approach could substantially um, achieve cheaper energy related costs and it could enable solar and wind to replace coal and, and gas plants by outcompeting them without subsidy. So, like, when we think about what was challenging for, for the Quidnet team at the time, it was hard for Howard and the rest of the team um, to get funding because the work to date had really been performed in, you know, computational models. People thought that the company needed to achieve additional proof points they were too early. They wanted them to have, you know, more customer traction. And so that's exactly the space where Prime can play a catalytic role and use the catalytic capital that we had within our network. And for the first four years of Prime Coalition's life, I think it's also kind of important to note parts of the evolution is 
we didn't have our own dedicated capital ourselves. We were in what we called syndication mode. So we were matching kind of high net worth individuals, U.S. family offices and foundations because they represented a huge asset class at the time that was willing to put capital into climate innovation with these early stage climate companies. So it took us a year, <laughs> us and the company, a year um, of an effort to raise the first round of funding, which was a 500K convertible note in June 2015 <laughs> from investors in our network. Um, that is also something that's different between then and now, which we, you know, we will talk later about what's changed. Um, but, you know, our facilitation of that catalytic investment, the team, which was already amazing, went on to do even greater things. They built a pilot plant in Texas. They raised additional funding from the likes of Clean Energy Venture Group, hired an exceptional CEO. And then three years later in 2018, they closed a six and a half million dollar Series A round that was co-led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures and others. Um, so it just shows you how the use of catalytic capital, which is much more structurally patient and flexible, can be used for these early stage climate technologies, help de-risk them for downstream investors and sort of make it through hopefully that, uh, you know, initial kind of valley of death and and sort of set the company up for success. Also, though, I think reflects the difference between those times and these times, right? Like Quidnet is a success story of the early um, the early prime iteration. On the other hand, you know, for the time it took between that seed round and the six and a half million dollar Series A was what three years, something like that. Uh, which you know, these days, like you're seeing companies raise capital six months at big step ups with lots more capital six months after they raised their previous round. I mean, it's just a, it's just such a different time now. And so clearly, clearly the val. I mean, tell me if you feel differently. But it seems clear to me that. They're in the in the wake of the clean tech 1.0 bust, the valleys of death became pretty deep. And particularly that early valley of death that you described, sort of company formation. And then I would say second to that one, the other one that became almost insurmountable was the valley of death to build your first like big scale thing, manufacturing facility, first big project, whatever that might be, because those were the big capital intensive assets that everybody had decided collectively was what we were doing wrong in cleantech 1.0. And so those valleys became deep and challenging. And that was where there was like a clear and distinct need for something to step in and fill the void. Fast forward to today, and it's a, it's a totally different landscape, both in the private investment community, the VC world, but also in other sources of capital that are available to companies at those various stages. So how do you think about how the landscape has changed broadly? And then, you know, we should talk about some of those individual, like, you know, if, if there's an entrepreneur who wants to, you know, map out their future funding pathways, like what's available to them, but start at the high level. What's, what's it look like today compared to what it looked like back then? First of all, climate tech is hot. No pun intended. I mean, there are so many VCs raising climate funds. There are so many professionals that are looking to transition into climate friendly companies. And then also entrepreneurs that are frankly being driven by the existential threat of climate change to create innovative solutions. So maybe let me talk a little bit first around the, the funding side. And then there's an, also an entire ecosystem that has really been deepened um, and developed to support climate tech companies at different kind of stages of their life cycle when they encounter different valleys of death. So first, let me talk about the funding side. Um, there are a lot more people that are coming into the climate space. I mean, 
my personal view is that climate tech companies, especially hardware-based companies in the climate space, they need tons of funding because they're capital intensive and they require support from different types of investors. There have been a lot more generalist VCs that have been pivoting to, to climate and that's been more welcome on my end because I think we need more people and more heads together that can think through the ways to address the climate crisis. And through early stage investing, particularly, I think it's very important to be collaborative. So when I talk about kind of different generalist VCs coming in, I mean, Union Square Ventures has a new climate fund. Sequoia, you know, announced a climate commitments and a climate initiative. You know, corporates have gotten into the game with, you know, Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund. Um, so that's really different. I mean, there's a lot of capital that's coming into the space, pending on what stage of the um, climate tech value chain you're in. You could be, you know, more m- more money chasing fewer investment opportunities. There's a little bit different for us at Prime because, you know, we, our additionality criteria and our sort of use of catalytic capital is a moving target, right? It, it really, it responds to the market and market conditions. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, Shale, if, if much of the market, climate tech market is focused on one particular vertical and technologies are becoming oversubscribed, then we likely wouldn't look there. We would look elsewhere. Um, so I think that's, that's one key thing on the, the VC funding side in terms of what's changed. There's also kind of a group and ecosystem of a ton of different organizations. And I think that for me is one of the things that's super, super exciting. I mean, so there were ones that were frankly already around, like Greentown Labs, which is, you know, North America's largest climate incubator. Um, you know, Clean Energy Trust, which focused on kind of climate and clean tech companies that are based in the Midwest, uh, the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. So they were actually part of Prime's like initial cohort, um, when we, we, when we were coming up. But since then, I mean, there, like I said, there are tons. So I feel like one that I can't say enough good things about is Activate, which is, um, formerly known as Cyclotron Road. And full disclosure, I'm on the Activate Leadership Council, but, you know, they're really exciting. They're discovering funding and championing entrepreneurial scientists and engineers in the climate space. That's been a huge change um, from our vantage point at Prime and frankly, the broader ecosystem, because there were there was less of that kind of early stage kind of incubation fellowship support for primarily hardware based companies. And Activate has an amazing pipeline of incredible entrepreneurs. And we're really, really grateful that they would exist, literally. Um, our portfolio would definitely be missing some names without them. There's also um, a bunch of other organizations that are touching on what I would call like the, the boundary of the incubator and accelerator model and fund. So when you think about Ele- Elemental Accelerator, you know, which supports and funds climate f- companies or Powerhouse Ventures, which started out as a climate incubator, now they have their own fund. Or decarbonate, which started out as an angel investor network and is now deploying capitalistic capital. There are a lot of other kind of models that are um, becoming hybrids, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and then, so that's all really on the early stage side, primarily, although Elemental kind of does do late stage pieces. And then there are a bunch of other funds that are really providing kind of purpose built capital for different stages of a company's life cycle. So when you think, you know, beyond prime, really from early stage to growth. So, you know, I could rattle off names, but Breakthrough Energy Ventures, you know, they play a critical role in the ecosystem and they weren't around when Prime was founded. You know, 
The Engine, MIT's Tough Tech Fund, uh, Energy Impact Partners, although you all were around when Prime was founded. I mean, the list goes on and on, plus government programs like ARPA-E Scale-Up that are really helping kind of bridge that market validation valley of death, your kind of your your pilot spinning valley of death that, that you mentioned. And then the project finance piece is particularly fascinating, too. I mean, that's continued to be an area which is challenging and organizations like Generate and Spring Lane Capital are are really thinking about innovative ways to address different types of risk kind of earlier on when a company is really trying to raise capital for its, you know, first project or first couple of projects. Um, this was a long way of saying, Shale, that <laughs> we have created a very healthy and diverse ecosystem. And I think that's really important if we're going to help climate tech companies traverse these, you know, various valleys of death before they reach success. Right. Most of the names that you mentioned, um, I would add, I mean, there's a, few, a bunch of others too. New Energy Nexus sort of like has its own through CalSeed and then uh, has a network of a bunch of early stage incubators and accelerators. Um, you mentioned RPE scale up, but there's also like RPE proper, which is actually a really valuable source of capital for a lot of these companies early stage. I think the, particularly the, the most of them, um, what they serve to do is some combination of letting the really early stage technology companies get further along before they need to raise external capital or riding alongside the really early stage external capital, providing them additional funding usually or lab space if you're Greentown Labs and support and expertise and all of that and basically just helping them get more mature faster. But I guess the fundamental question then is given that we have this rich ecosystem, today and it's very impressive and it's become more sophisticated over time is there still a valley of death there yes i i believe that the valleys of death that you know we we kind of first talked about in outline they're still there it's just the magnitude and the contours of them are what change over time and so i think there's also capital that within different kind of technologies or approaches may be able to traverse a particular valley of death more easily than others um but they still exist. And I think that's just frankly because these companies require lots of money and they require time. Like we need time to be able to see kind of the fruits of our labor because a lot of these ecosystem development efforts and frankly, additional funding that's been pouring into the space has been pretty recent. It's only been the past couple of years. So what are a couple of areas? I mean, you don't need to give away your investment uh, theses at the moment, but a couple of very, you know, you mentioned like if, if everybody's piling into one sector, you're probably not looking there. So my guess is that you're not investing in the next carbon accounting platform or anything like that. So what are some areas broadly that you think are underserved today? Yeah, uh, that's a very great question. And it's like one of my, one of my favorite questions. <laughs> um, there are a bunch of categories that are either less sexy or like broader spaces, which are kind of sexy, but there's a particular vertical, which, you know, people aren't focusing on. So let's let's think about um, industrial kind of process heat, industrial separations. We invested in a company called Via Separations. Um, it's led by um, a, a woman named Shreya Deve, who's incredible. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that industrial separations accounts for 12% of all U.S. energy usage. So it's not an area of climate tech that we hear about often. It's not, you know, electric aviation, for example, which seems super exciting, but it's really important. And that team's developed a material that works as a membrane that's strong, robust, and tunable. 
And they're also executing on several pilot projects. So so that there's one like one like unloved categories that people don't really think about um, or get sort of overlooked. Then there's a second and two, which I want to talk a little bit about is when we think about ag tech, there's been a lot of investment that's been going into ag tech. A lot of that investment has been happening more downstream, closer to the end consumer. So think, you know, like Instacart or, you know, more of these kind of consumer based um, alternative proteins. Fake meat. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but there's been less emphasis on companies that are innovating more midstream and upstream. So closer to the producer. One of the things that I care a lot about is food waste. You know, food waste is responsible for up to 6% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And so when I see companies like Mori, like Clean Crop, that are developing these solutions that can extend shelf life um, or protect against contaminants that are, you know, critical and devastating for different food groups, like that's super exciting. So those are two pieces. Then there's other stuff too, like, Anything ocean related. I meant the ocean is so awesome to me because it is so unknown. But there are companies that are innovating in, you know, blue tech all over the place, whether it's ocean sequestration or ocean farming. Um, continuing my love of oceans, I would really love for for a company to focus on kind of decarbonizing shipping. I, we actually did this. We did this. We did this review of our investment pipeline whereby we were looking at all of the companies and we categorized them across different kind of technology area because we've looked at over 6,000 companies since Prime's inception and I think less than like 10 focused on shipping. Like, why is that? Um, I'd love for, for someone to, you know, pitch me an idea or technology or concept that's really focusing on that space. Yeah, I totally agree on all those sectors that you described. I've I've personally, you know, I... I've just started digging into the blue tech world a little bit, and I'm still pretty fresh in it, to be honest, but I find it fascinating. I agree with you. Like the oceans as a carbon sink and all, but I mean, there's all sorts of ocean related stuff, some of which is pretty fraught, right? There's um, the deep sea mining for polymetallic nodules of uh, of battery minerals, and there's all sorts of stuff going on in the ocean, which is, which is exciting. Um, I guess the other question is, the degree to which, you know, the other thing that has clearly changed, we talked about the very early stage, right? All these new organizations and programs and sources of capital that are available to companies at the earliest stage to try to bridge that first valley of death. On the last valley of death, or maybe even the second last valley of death, the other thing that has changed is the sort of outcomes, the potential pathways for exit for investors in the climate tech space, and particularly with the public markets opening up for a lot of these companies, with SPACs emerging, with you know what appears to be the sort of glimmerings of a resurgence in in large scale M and A in the sector, you know you're you're very early stage investor. We at EIP are sort of multi stage. I focus a little bit earlier. Um, so I wonder the degree to which you think that those outcomes, which are you know somewhere distant in the future for a company that you might invest in today are changing the landscape of the the valley of death like can you in other words you know are you seeing it that companies you might be investing in today are garnering a lot more interest that wouldn't have before because of that are they able to raise more capital sooner earlier in their life cycle are they able to raise subsequent rounds faster like what's happening because the exit landscape has changed Ooh, all of the above. I think particularly they're able to to 
raise more capital. They are able to raise more capital on shorter timelines. And I think because of, you know, when you think about like the proliferation of SPACs and how there's this kind of broader kind of market of liquidity um, further on down the line, it means more investors are seeing a return um, in companies that they were more hesitant to, to move into. I think that's all been really shaping how we approach different investment opportunities. And, you know, I think because there's so much money that's been pouring into the space and also because that is even changing how entrepreneurs sort of engage with with early stage investors and how they pitch us knowing that there is more visibility potentially on kind of what an exit outcome or exit pathway could look like. I think, you know, there are also some entrepreneurs that are coming in with a little bit more, I don't know if the right word is like swagger, but swagger. it's like a good- That's funny. I was <laughs> thinking that word in my head. I was like, whatever she says, I'm going to say swagger. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, can I say that on the interchange? And I was like, of course I can. So that was my pause. But yeah, with more swagger, knowing that, you know, in some instances, maybe this is a, you know, a startup's market, like they can have their choice. And the question is, how long is that going to last? And who's going to be around, you know, if and when the tide goes out again on climate tech? Yep. Agreed. So, I mean, to that, I guess to finish off, do you have a prediction what the what the landscape looks like five years from now, or more specifically, like where are the valleys of death in twenty twenty five? I think the landscape five years from now. I should note, I do know that twenty twenty five is four years from now, or three and a, <laughs> three and a half. I'm I'm aware of that, but it's a nice round. So you know, it's a nice half. It's a half decade number. It is a nice round number. If you said like 2027, I might have been like, wait, what? Um, right. But, you know, I think in five, in three and a half or whatever, till by 2025, I think that there's actually still going to be a focus on climate tech companies. One of the things that gives me um, hope and excitement is that there's a whole consumer and sort of generational shift about those who are caring about climate. And there's been a kind of a big push for corporates to demonstrate their climate commitment, you know, in whatever ways that looks like, whether it's reducing emissions in their supply chain or kind of partnering with climate friendly companies or investing in them. Um, but I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. And I think that's going not to go away because people are going to continue to ask and demand um, for it. Uh, and so I think the climate tech space in 2025 is still going to be very robust. Now, there was a second part of your question is, even if I think it's going to be robust and consumers are going to be asking for things which may push kind of, you know, larger organizations to take a more thoughtful, consistent, and deep approach towards climate tech companies, does that mean the valleys of death will be eliminated? No, I don't think so. Not at all. I actually think the, the project finance area is is one that, so kind of that third and, and fourth piece is is one that really is going to need more um, kind of focus and thought. And that's not really the lane that we that, you know, we play in at Prime, you know, full full disclosure. Um, but I think that there's this, this whole sort of gap. There's so much that's being raised in, in project finance, but it's a traditionally low risk, low return asset class. And 
while there are some organizations that are really pushing the frontiers of investments and taking on more risks, whether it's scaling smaller investments or kind of newer business models like like Generate and Spring Lane, um, I think that as these demonstration projects become larger or there are these like kind of first of a kind projects, we we are still getting into no woman or no man's land. Um, it's still too early and risky for project finance investors. It's too big for VC. You know, they're, these are different. These are much larger amounts of capital. And I think it's harder to make these reasonable risk adjusted returns on that project. And so I my prediction would be that in 2025, which the, the valley of, of death doesn't change per se around that that sort of commercial market validation or widespread deployment risk. But I think that's going to be an area that's much deeper because I see that there's more money that's flocking towards the early stage um, technologies and supporting an earlier kind of climate tech valley of death. But I think it's still going to get people some time to focus more on sort of the later stage areas where project finance could play a really critical role. I totally agree. I, I think that the... Project finance and just getting, you know, initial assets into the field deployed and capitalizing those that that remains to me the biggest valley of death today. Or maybe I should say, you know, I don't I don't see a lot of companies actually failing if they have a good technology and they have customers who want the product. I don't see a lot of companies actually failing today because of that. So maybe it's not a valley of death, but it's like a valley of pain and dilution, you know, or like it's actually, it is still really hard. And though folks like Generate and Spring Lane exist, they are few and far between and their capital is still pretty expensive. So it's not like there's an abundant, you know, competitive market to finance the first of a kind asset for basically anybody. So you do go through a lot of pain to get it done. At the end of the day, oftentimes you end up doing it on balance sheet, which means you're doing it with expensive capital, which means you're taking dilution. So it's a it's a valley of pain and dilution. And I agree with you that that one is maybe the the least solved today and probably the one that's going to take the most work moving forward because, you know, you've got some solutions for really large scale stuff. The DOE loan guarantee program is back open for business thanks to Jigger in part, but you know, they're looking to, it's, you know, projects that are $50 million plus are the best suited to that type of a program. So it's, you know, you're doing the little stuff. It's, it's still tough. Uh, so I totally agree with you there, but we will keep this conversation alive. Uh, even though hopefully the valleys of death will become increasingly less fatal as time goes on. Well, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. How do you feel like this went in comparison to the Energy Gang podcast? Did we do better? <laughs> oh, much better. No question. Amy Dufour is a principal at Prime Impact Fund, an early stage fund which deploys catalytic capital into deep decarbonization technologies. What did you think? As always, we love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Uh, email us at contact at postscriptaudio.com. Tweet at us at at interchange show. We do appreciate your feedback and ideas for future episodes. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. <laughs>